All right, we'll be continuing our study in 1 Kings chapter 9. <laughs> and uh, Dad said to tell you all hi, and he misses you all. And uh, last week we focused on Solomon's, uh, we saw his prayer of the dedication. We focused on uh, God's forgiveness and the attributes of God we saw in there. At the end of chapter 8, they had a huge celebration, and Solomon offered 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. And now we're going to start chapter 9 and see uh, God appear to Solomon a second time. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, again for bringing us here, Lord. I pray that you would minister to us in your word now. I pray that uh, you would speak through me, Lord, and let my own words not be spoken, but your words spoken through me, Lord God, and that there would be clarity, Lord, and understanding and I pray that your word would not return void, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. So in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And so uh, this is the second time that God appeared to Solomon. The first time was when he became king in chapter 3. And it seems like he's just going back to where he was before. He's made, the first time he made a thousand sacrifices. And this time he's made multiple thousands of sacrifices. And uh, it's, if we feel like we've drifted away from God, then we just need to go back to him. And we don't need to go to Gibeon and offer thousands of sacrifices. We just need to return to his word and to return to prayer with him. And, you know, a relationship's not going to be that good if there's no communication. So we need to hear from God when we read his word, and we need to speak to him uh, in prayer. And there's a saying that I don't like, but it's a biblical saying. It says, you're only as close to God as you want to be. And that's, that's like, ouch, that hurts to hear. You know, it's like if you feel like you're not close to God, it's because you're not making the effort. It's not that God isn't coming to you. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it talks about this here. There's some rough verses here, but there's some uh, really good things to know about our relationship with God. It says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so, uh, in those first verses there, uh, it says that as Christians, we're in a relationship with God, and his spirit within us yearns jealously. And usually jealousy is kind of a dangerous emotion. People don't think of it as a good one, but God uh, is jealous for us in a righteous way. He wants what's best for us, and friendship with the world is not good for us. 
Uh, verse 6 says that God is gracious in his relationship to us because he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7 through 10 there, that first part of verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8 there, the part that says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the part in the section I really like to focus on. The rest is kind of rough, but uh, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Uh, God's not a liar. In uh, verse 10 there, it says, if we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. So that's what Solomon's doing here. He's drawing near to God, and God is appearing to him a second time. So back in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3, it says, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So in Solomon's prayer, we looked at last week, he kept asking God to hear their prayers and to answer them. And God's already answering that prayer because he's responding to Solomon. And he's answering the prayer of dedication, saying that he will consecrate the temple and keep his eyes on it. And man can build the temple, but God's the only one who can consecrate a work and make it meaningful. In verse 4, it goes on. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among the peoples, and as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. So with this covenant that God made with David and Solomon, they had to follow God and then God would bless them. And it's interesting uh, because God is saying here that either way, whether Solomon keeps his end of the covenant or not, God's going to be glorified. Either the other nations will see Israel being blessed because of their obedience and they'll know that God is good or they'll see God punishing them because of their disobedience and they'll know that God is a just and jealous God. But either way, he's going to be glorified in it. And the reason that he is glorified either way is because he's worthy of all glory. And if you look in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it talks about the worthiness of God. In Philippians 2, chapter, uh, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even to, uh, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, in looking at the worthiness of Jesus here, Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. We, no one can be as humble as he was because he started off as God from heaven and came down to earth in the lowly likeness of men. And so it's impossible for us to be that humble because we can't start off in heaven. We're already lowly men. But, um, and he became humble to the point of death. But uh, he's that ultimate example of humility. Let's see. And uh, in James that we looked at earlier, we saw that when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. And we see how greatly Jesus humbled himself. And we can see here the extent that God exalted him. Jesus was the most humble, and now he's the most exalted. Uh, God said, it said he has that name that is above every name, and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those in heaven and earth and under the earth, so no one's excluded from that. Everyone will bow their knee and confess. So even those who don't believe in Christ are going to bow their knee and confess the name of Jesus Christ, that he's Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So there's no atheists in heaven, but there also aren't going to be any atheists in hell either. They're going to know that God exists when they kneel before his throne and confess his name. And you can step out in traffic and say you don't believe in a Greyhound bus, but that doesn't mean that one isn't going to run you over. It's kind of a dangerous thing to do. And it's the same with God. You know, an atheist can say, oh, I don't believe in God, but that doesn't mean they're not going to kneel before his throne. So every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because he's worthy of that glory. And it shows us that there's no denying that Jesus is worthy of all adoration in Philippians there. Back in Kings, in this section of verses, there's another thing we can look at. Uh, it's how God said he would punish Israel. The Bible tells us that God punishes us lovingly to discipline us for our own good. Another cross-reference here, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, talks about God's discipline. Verse 5 through 11 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so God punishes us because he loves us. And this passage says that God punishes us uh, the, reason, the reason that he punishes us uh, proves that we are his children, that he loves us. 
It says that he punishes us for our profit, so we know it's for a reason. He doesn't just punish us, but he also brings healing and restoration when we repent. And we see that played out throughout the whole Old Testament there, because we know that uh, the children of Israel don't keep this covenant. Eventually the kings turn away from God, and they're exiled to Babylon, and it's a punishment, but God loves them in that punishment, and he's gracious to them. There's a, you don't have to turn here, I'll just read it real quick, but Jeremiah 29, 11, that's a verse that a lot of people memorize, and it's their favorite verse, but uh, it's funny, I think a lot of them forget the text, the context of it. This is uh, what God's telling the nation of Israel while they're captive in Babylon, while they're going through their punishment, this is what God tells them. He says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you, will see, uh, when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. So even while they're in captivity in Babylon and being punished, Jesus loves them and he wants to restore them. He wants them to have that hope that he has good plans for them, even though they're going through such a hard time. So God punishes us lovingly. He does it graciously. He has the hope for the future. He does it for a reason. And um, he always warns us, like he's warning Solomon here. He gives us plenty of warning before he punishes us to repent. On to verse 10 now, back in 1 Kings. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired, that King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day. Then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. So this is kind of a funny section here. This is the same Hiram from chapter 5 that Solomon made a deal with. Solomon said that he would give Hiram food for all his household as long as Hiram supplied the wood for his construction projects. So it was a fair deal. And this wasn't part of the deal. These cities are just a gift from Solomon to Hiram, 20 cities for 20 years of a contract. And it seems like Hiram's looking a gift horse in the mouth here. He's saying, what are these cities? And he named them Kabul, which means good for nothing. That's what that means. And uh, I tried looking it up in my computer program, and Galilee only shows up six times in the Old Testament, but it's mentioned over 60 times in the New Testament. And that's because Jesus spent so much time in Galilee. That's where he called his disciples. That's where he did so many miracles and ministries. But uh, Hiram thought it was good for nothing, but it was precious in the sight of Jesus. Jesus finds value in worthless things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, let's see here. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, 
Not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world to put to shame uh, things which are despised by God. I'm sorry, let me read that again. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So if you feel like you're worthless or weak or foolish or base, then you're just the kind of person God's looking to use. Jesus was from Galilee. He called some of his disciples uh, who were just lowly fishermen from Galilee. Uh, people were caught off guard by the things they did because they're like, they knew the reputation of the Galileans. They're like, these people came from Galilee? And uh, God uses the weak and foolish things to bring more glory to himself. You know, because we can't boast in ourselves because we know we're weak and foolish. We know that it's God working through us. And on the day of Pentecost, in the, in the book of Acts, the first chapter there, the second chapter, the disciples are filled with the Spirit, and they come into the streets speaking in tongues. And all these people from different areas understand them in their own language. And they say, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born. And Peter didn't take credit for that and say, ha, you misjudged me, but he just went straight to pointing to Jesus and sharing the gospel with him. He didn't brag about himself. So God used these lowly fishermen to bring glory to himself. Uh, Hiram didn't appreciate the land of Galilee, but Jesus didn't have a problem with it. And Hiram gave uh, Solomon this gift of gold in return. This 120 talents of gold is about four tons. That's a lot of gold. In verse 15, it goes on, back in 1 Kings chapter 9. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Horon, Balath, and Tadmor in the wilderness, in the land of Judah. All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. So Solomon's wise to keep uh, things, keep building things while he has this time of peace and while he has plenty of provisions. Uh, but at the same time, he needs to be sure that he's trusting in God and not in his own strength. Uh, it goes on, All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were of, not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely, from these Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. So Solomon had a group of forced laborers who were the remnants of these nations that God told the Israelites to wipe out completely way back in the time of Joshua, but they didn't. They let them, they tried making them forced laborers back then too. And uh, God had a reason for telling them that, but the Israelites didn't 
totally get rid of them. It seems practical from a worldly perspective. It's like, well, why kill these people when they can work for us? But when they were allowed to live on, their idolatry was allowed to live on too. And if we fast forward from 1 Kings here, 400 years in the future, uh, that's when the Jews are exiled from Israel and he's starting to bring them back to rebuild the temple. They've already gone through their exile in Babylon. In Ezra chapter 9, let's see if I can find it. Oh, it's right after 2 Chronicles here. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, here it goes, it goes on here. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaan, Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. A lot of these are the same people here that Solomon's forced to labor here. They lived on, and now they're causing trouble when I, Israel's coming back from their idolatry. It goes on here. Uh, let me see here. The whole reason Israel was exiled was because of their idolatry, and now that God's brought them back, they're stumbling again. They're intermarrying with these idolatrous uh, locals here. And it's going to cause a problem. And we see how seriously Ezra takes this in verse, uh, and the verses on here. In verse 2 it says, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garments and my robe, and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garments and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And uh, he goes on the rest of this chapter with his heartfelt prayer of repentance here. And we don't have time to look at all of it, but it just shows us uh, what the problem is here. It was a problem in Joshua's time. It's a problem in Solomon's time. They keep letting this thing live on, this temptation that's going to keep coming back to bite them. And I think there, at least for me, it might be the same for you too, but there's some things in my life that I might allow to stay, which really need to, I just need to get rid of. Uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, let me read that real quick. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So uh, 
There are things we can afford to take off these weights that are weighing us down and slowing us down in our race. And uh, it'd be good if we could just uh, let them go and run our race with more purpose. In verse 22, back in chapter 9 of 1 Kings, it says, But the children of Israel Solomon made no forced laborers, because they were men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Now three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished the temple. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Let's see here. This section reminded me of Romans chapter 13, verse 11. I think I have a new record of cross-references this time. We're going to get one verse from every book in the Bible. So Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says, And do this knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So make no provision for the flesh. And what does that mean? To make a provision means to do something now that'll make things easier in the future. It's like when you pack a lunch in the morning so that when you have your lunch break at work, you can just sit down and enjoy yourself and relax. And so Paul is saying there not to make things easier for our flesh. You know, don't cause yourself temptations. And I think that might have been Solomon's biggest problem. He had all these riches, he had all this wisdom. And it was easy for him to make provisions for his flesh, to kind of just make, uh, he kind of brought temptations to himself. It might have been an accident, it might have, you might have known that what he was doing. He made a house for his Egyptian wife, as we just read, and Egypt is a picture of the world. He made a fleet of ships in order to get more gold, and we'll look at more of his provisions in chapter 10 here. And so uh, it's important that we look at his example and not... Uh, make provisions for our flesh. In chapter 10 it goes on, Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. So this queen traveled 1,500 miles to see Solomon. 
And it's interesting to me that uh, Solomon's fame is linked to the name of the Lord. And that's the way it should be. It shows that he was giving glory to God for his wisdom. Later in 2 Kings chapter 20, uh, King Hezekiah has visitors. And he shows them all the treasures of his house and the temple. And uh, they leave, the visitors leave. And Isaiah comes up to him and says, who are they and what did you tell them? And Hezekiah says, they're from Babylon, and I showed them everything. He's like, there's nothing in my house I didn't show them. Then Isaiah tells him that a prophecy from God, he says that Babylon will come and take all his treasures, and even his sons, into captivity uh, after Hezekiah passes on. And I wonder if that outcome would have been different if when they visited Hezekiah, instead of showing them his treasures, if he would have told them about God. You know, if they would have seen that his treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves can't steal, they might have left them alone. I don't know. But it's a different, it's an interesting comparison between Solomon uh, showing, answering Sheba's questions, the Queen of Sheba, and showing her uh, about God, and Hezekiah just showing them the treasures. So this Queen of Sheba here, it says that she came to test Solomon with hard questions. And she's, it's not talking about riddles that she came up with for fun to stump him. They're questions that were on her heart. And a lot of times uh, when people realize that we're Christians, they'll try to test us. And we might not even know that they're testing us, but they'll be watching us to see what our reaction is when we're in a hard situation. And that's happened to me before. I didn't know they were watching, but something happened. And then all of a sudden they're like, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> and they really keep an eye on you. So Solomon was able to answer all her questions because he had the wisdom of the Lord. And it's God who has all the answers. No question is too difficult for him. In verse 4 it goes on. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. So it sounds like she had a pretty big tour of his kingdom and she was just exhausted from seeing everything and trying to analyze it. And it's funny that she was even impressed with the way he seated his servants and what they were wearing. In verse 6 it goes on, Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw it with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are these ser your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. So her response here is uh, the response I want people to have when they come to the Lord. I want them to see that God, in such a way that they're just exhausted by his greatness, I want people to realize that what they heard from God, heard about God, is true. And this queen said uh, that she was able to, had to see it with her own eyes. She wasn't content to just hear about his wisdom. She wanted to go experience it. And Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. I want people just to have a taste of the Lord and to know what they're missing out on. And you can try to tell people everything you know about God, but unless they're born again and see him with their own eyes, they won't be able to fully comprehend him. So it's good to hear about God, but it's better to know him. 
And uh, the Queen of Sheba thought that Solomon's servants were happy because of his wisdom. But how much more blessed are we to be servants of God? In verse 9 it says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. So the queen herself here appears to be wise. She recognizes that God is the reason for his peace and prosperity and wisdom. And she knows that God chose Solomon for a reason, because he loves Israel, and he thought Solomon would be a good king. And uh, Solomon wasn't necessarily the only option for king. He wasn't David's oldest son. We remember looking back in the book of Samuel when we went through that, that uh, there were a few conspiracies to take the throne, but God put Solomon on the throne for a reason. In verse 10 it goes on, Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones, there never again came such an abundance of spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram which brought gold from Ophir brought great quantities of almugwood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the almugwood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such almugwood, nor has the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And so she gave Solomon the same amount of gold that Hiram did. And it said earlier that she came with these camels. So I'm wondering how many camels it takes to carry four tons of gold, plus all the spices and the stones. That must have been a lot of camels. And uh, her gift shows that she really valued Solomon's wisdom. And in return, he gave her according to the royal generosity and all that she desired, whatever she asked. So it doesn't tell us how much she went away with, but it sounds like it'd be a lot. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she went with more than she came with. She might have even asked for more camel camels to carry it back. Who knows? And uh, this Queen of Sheba is mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. Verse 38. In verse 38 it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South, that's Queen of Sheba it's talking about, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus was far greater than Solomon, but so many people disregarded him and didn't want to hear what he had to say. And uh, if the people of Jesus' time valued hearing from him, like this queen valued hearing from Solomon, 
Jesus would have given them abundant riches like Solomon did to the queen. Uh, you don't go away from God empty-handed. But they didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. And in the judgment, that generation is going to be before the throne, and they're going to call the queen of Sheba to the witness stand, and she's going to testify against them. She'll say, I went from like this long distance, I brought all these treasures to hear from Solomon, and you guys wouldn't listen to Jesus. It's going to be a sad time. Uh, in verse 14, it goes on, back in 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold, besides that from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, he also made 300 shields of hammered gold, 300 minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side of the palace of the place of the seat and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had merchants, merchant ships at sea with a fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. So Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. So we see a lot of Solomon's prosperity here. He received 666 talents of gold every year. Today that would be almost a billion dollars. These uh, verses go on to show just how rich Solomon was. He had enough money to make 500 golden shields that were just for decoration. They'd be really bad to take into battle. They're extra heavy and they're malleable. And... Uh, he didn't care about silver. It said he was counted as nothing because he had so much gold. He was this one-of-a-kind. He had this one-of-a-kind throne here. He brought in the exotic animals like monkeys and apes. It just shows you the extent of his riches. And there wasn't another earth on another king on earth that was as rich or wise as him. When Solomon asked for wisdom from God, uh, God said because he didn't ask for riches, God would make him rich also. And he wasn't joking, but uh, God really blessed Solomon, and he really blesses us too. There's some verses I want to look at concerning riches. We got a few more cross-references. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. This is Jesus talking about treasures and riches. <clears throat> he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we might not be as rich as Solomon, but Jesus says we don't even need to worry about the most basic necessities of life, like food and clothing. God feeds the birds and he clothes the lilies of the field. And uh, he, he says that we're more valuable than they are, so of course he's going to take care of us too. And even though Solomon was a billionaire, Jesus saw Solomon, he knows what he dressed like, he says... I look at this lily and it looks better than Solomon did in all his glory, in the height of his riches. And uh, we can uh, rest in God's promises. It shows us that we don't need to be rich, we just need to rest in him. All we need to do is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things are going to be added to us. And uh, these verses should be especially encouraging in this tax season. We all got to do our taxes. Just give it all to Uncle Sam and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. <laughs> so uh, there's another verse here. I'm going to have like three cross-references in a row. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9. Uh, this one's not a proverb by Solomon, but it's by this guy named Al. Let's see, what's his name? It's a weird one. Agur. So Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9 says, uh, he's, this guy is praying to God. He says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. And so he wisely asks God to give him his necessities, no more and no less. There's a temptation to forget about God when everything's going smoothly. But there's also a temptation to give up on God when things are going so rough and we're in our darkest days. And uh, part of the model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples said, Give us this day our daily bread. So uh, we really need to come to God and rely on him every day, just like the Israelites in the desert when they went out to gather the manna, they went out every day to gather just that day's amount. That's what God told them to do. And so God's going to provide for us every day. We just need to keep coming back to him. Another cross-reference, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 11. 
1 Timothy 6, verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And so uh, we know Solomon was rich, and we know he didn't carry those riches into heaven with him. It says here to be content with just food and clothing, the same two necessities that Jesus mentioned in chapter 6 of Matthew. And we also see here that money isn't evil, it's the love of money, and it's the desire to be rich that cause all the problems. Uh, the descriptions of what money can do are scary. A desire for riches can be dangerous. The snare it talks about, that would be a trap to catch birds. Drowning is a terrible thing. It talks about being pierced through with many sorrows. That makes me think of those traps in the Indiana Jones movie. You know, the temple floor would open up and there'd be all these spears sticking up you're about to fall into. It's like, that's what the picture that comes to mind. It says that those who desire to be rich, or let's see, it says some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So there's a lot of traps in wanting to be rich. And while other people are chasing those things, we're supposed to be chasing uh, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. We're supposed to be running the opposite direction of the world. Back to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24, it says, Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he had stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. Also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiva, and the king's merchants brought them in Kiva at the current price. Now a chariot was, that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver, and a horse 150, and thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. <clears throat> in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 to 20, uh, this is 400 years before Israel even had a king, but God gave Moses some guidelines that a king should follow. Let's see if I can find Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 20. God tells Moses, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, 
one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levite. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of Israel. So it specifically says uh, three commands not to do. It says don't multiply horses, especially ones from Egypt. Don't multiply wives and don't multiply gold. And we know that Solomon failed in all three of these things. He had a thousand wives. We just looked at how much gold he brought in and it just said he went to Egypt to buy horses. Uh, that's the things of the, the kingdoms of the world worry about. They multiply horses so they can feel safe in the power of their army. They multiply wives so they can feel safe in having an heir to continue their lineage. And they multiply money to feel secure financially. But God wants uh, uh, his king to rely on him for all these things. Let's see. Uh, so to summarize here, to finish up, we know that uh, Solomon had a lot of accomplishments in his life. We've been looking at him for the last uh, few months now as we've been going through 1 Kings. But how many buildings or expensive decorations or treasures are left? You know, as the years go on from here, the treasures are looted and the buildings are destroyed as they are led into captivity as a punishment. And uh, it looks like nothing he did remained, but... There are some accomplishments that still remain. We have his life story in the Bible to learn from with his positive and negative examples. He wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, and those are going to be in the Bible forever. And so uh, there are some treasures that he stored up in heaven, and the things that he did for God have lasted and carried an eternal value. And there's a line from a poem that Chuck Smith liked to quote a lot. It says, only one life that will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And that's, uh, I think, an encouragement for us. We looked at earlier that we need to be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to us. So Solomon had all these accomplishments, all this work, all this money he put into everything, and none of it lasted, but uh, what he did for God lasted. So let's uh, close in prayer and have our last worship song. Lord God, thank you for your word, Lord God. Thank you that you provide for our needs so that we don't have to worry, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you love us and care for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that when you punish us, you do it graciously and lovingly and in hopes of restoration, Lord God. I pray for uh, this congregation today, Lord, that you would just bless them, that you would go with them as they go out this week, Lord God, that you would... Uh, let them feel your presence, Lord, and let them know you more, Lord, just like the Queen of Sheba wanted to know for herself, Lord God. I pray that we would just seek you, Lord, 
in your kingdom, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, and I pray you would just go with us and be with us through all the trials we may face and uh, cause your face to shine upon us. In your name I pray, amen.